Amen. Now, before we get into the text at all, in way of introduction, I do want to establish a few basic ground rules for our study through the Gospel of Mark. When it comes to any kind of an expositional study or a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study, really examining any of the books of the Bible, I think it's often important to establish just a few basic ground rules that we'll all be able to kind of have put together so that when we approach the text, we're all on the same page. Our first ground rule is very simple. This is not a harmony of the Gospels study. We are not going to be examining uh, all of the interactions that Jesus had with various people. We're not going to be using Mark as kind of a blueprint by which we're going to examine the entire life of Christ. We're going to be examining Mark's narrative. And so with that in mind, uh, we're only going to be looking at other passages. We're only going to be looking at other real narration given to us by the other gospel accounts only when it's absolutely necessary for us to understand what Mark's communicating. Once again, when you're studying various books of the Bible, and and, and in even my prep for chapter one of the gospel of Mark, so often pastors will use their examination of Mark chapter one and then bloviate because they spend more time in the other gospels than they did actually in Mark. And so I want us to establish the first ground rule. We're studying the Gospel of Mark. We will look at other accounts only in regards to how they enable us to understand what Mark is communicating. The second ground rule we're going to establish is that this is an in-depth study with a reasonable pace. Uh, We're not going to be spending two and a half years in the Gospel of Mark As a matter of fact, we're going to do the text service. We're going to approach what Mark is communicating with reverence, with respect. Uh, We're going to try to unpack what he's communicating. But we're also going to try to keep ourselves from getting bogged down in any one place too long. Uh, One of the mistakes I think a lot of expositional teachers make is that they take too long. And so we're going to do the text service, but at the same time, we're going to keep up a reasonable pace. Now, let's establish some background in regards to our author, a background profile of Mark. I find that it's often important to understand my author before I even get into what he's writing. Now, ultimately, the author of the Gospel of Mark is the Lord. And we understand that all Scripture was given to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That in essence, all of Scripture is God-breathed. That the ultimate author, the ultimate communicator, is the Lord. And yet, what's fascinating is that God chose to use men filled with the Holy Spirit to pen Scripture. Our author is Mark. And really, historically, there's been very little debate that Mark is the author of this particular gospel. Historically and biblically, our author, Mark, also goes by the names John Mark. He can be referred to as Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And historically, he's often referred to as Mark, the evangelist, a few of his other names. Church history indicates that Mark was of Jewish heritage from the tribe of Levi. He was born 
And none of this is scriptural. This is only in regards to church history. We're told that Mark was born in North Africa, more than likely the region today known as Libya. He later moved to the region of Jerusalem, probably grew up in the city itself. Most scholars believe that Mark's family was affluent, that they were wealthy, that they were well-to-do. Mark's mother, her name was Mary. We know that because of Scripture, and we're told that she was actually an early disciple of Jesus. Acts chapter 12, verse 12, gives us this indication. We never, though, see Mark's father mentioned in the Bible. Some have claimed that Mark's father was actually the cousin of Peter's wife and died when Mark was of young age. This would account for Peter's obvious connection to Mary, Mark's mother, as well as why, Mark would, why Peter would later fill a very male-dominated role in the life of Mark, kind of a father figure in and of himself. So Mark, born in North Africa, was a Jew, moved to Jerusalem. His mother was Mary, an early disciple of Jesus. His father we don't know anything about other than the fact that there's a legend indicating that Mark's father was a cousin to Peter's wife, which brought Mark into the family of Peter. This would make uh, him a cousin to Barnabas. This would make him uh, uh, very interconnected to the early narrative of Scripture. Three times in Scripture we see Mark referred to as John Mark. And this is interesting because we find here his Jewish name being John, which meant the kindness of God, and his Roman name being Mark, which meant hammer, which is, I think, indicative of his personality. We find in some aspects the kindness of God. We also find, if you examine the life of Mark, he was a bit stubborn. He was kind, but he was also a hammer. And he was referred to using both of these names, John Mark, three times in Scripture. This also is important because it indicates to us that Mark, our author, was a Roman citizen. Most people that went by these dual names, John, Hebrew, Mark, Roman, uh, often had both of the names because it helped them relate to the culture around them. And Mark was probably given when he became a Roman citizen or was maybe born into Roman citizenship. Though we don't find Mark mentioned in any of the gospel narratives, this doesn't mean that Mark wasn't a witness or even a participant in the earthly ministry of Jesus. And I think this is important. Coptic tradition claims that Mark, our author, was an early disciple of Jesus. They even go so far as to place Mark as being one of the 70 disciples commissioned by Jesus in Luke chapter 9, sent out with a mission by Jesus to go out and do ministry. Coptic tradition places Mark as one of these 70 disciples, though Scripture doesn't indicate their names. Some identify Mark as being the man who set up the upper room for the final Passover. Mark chapter 14, verse 13, Jesus tells the disciples to go to look for a young man, be carrying a pitcher of water. Uh, he'll lead you to this upper room. He'll get everything prepared someplace that as being actually Mark. Some speculate that he might even have been the young man who ran away naked when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
An interesting story we find in the, the final verses of Mark chapter 14, as Jesus is being arrested there in the Garden of Gethsemane, as the disciples are, are dispersed, as they're running away for fear of being arrested themselves. We're given a small detail in the Gospel of Mark. We're not given in any of the other narratives that a young man, as he was fleeing, they tried to grab him. They grabbed his coat. He left his coat behind, and he ran through the Garden of Gethsemane, naked as a jaybird, uh, on his way home. People believe that that was actually Mark, our author. Now, though we can't say with certainty how involved or uninvolved Mark as a young man was in the earthly ministry of Jesus, there is one thing we can say with absolute scriptural certainty, and that is the fact that Mark's home, the home of Mary, his mother, played a central role in the early church. It seems that it was the central spot by which the first church there located in Jerusalem met, Acts 12. It's believed to be the home that Jesus used for his final Passover Seder uh, and the time he spent with his disciples. It's believed that it was this house that the disciples fled back to following Jesus' arrest and his ultimate death, that they spent the three days kind of in hiding there uh, in Mary's home. Uh, it would be fitting. Peter, his connections with Mary, Mark's mom, this would all seem to make sense. It also was the house uh, that the resurrected Jesus would later appear to the disciples, John chapter 20. It's also seen as the house by which the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost. Mark, no doubt as a young man, was privy to some pretty incredible, radical, let's just say revolutionary events. Mark would later be a missionary. He was included in the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey in Acts chapter 12. If you know the story, though, partway through the journey, Mark got a little freaked out, bailed on the journey itself, returned back home, and it seems as though fell out of favor with the Apostle Paul. He would later join, team up with his cousin Barnabas, would embark on another missionary journey, though that wouldn't be with the Apostle Paul. Though his relationship with Paul scripturally didn't begin very well, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11 indicates that Mark later redeemed himself. Paul says concerning Mark that he should be brought to Paul for, quote-unquote, he is useful to me for ministry. Philemon chapter 1, verse 24 indicates that Mark was one of a few trusted men that would stand by the Apostle Paul in Rome while he awaited trial before Emperor Nero. Later, Paul would send Mark to be his representative in dealing with some of the issues that were facing the Colossian church. Colossians chapter 4, verse 10 indicates this. Mark, when it was all said and done, would end up planting, according to church history, the church there in Alexandria, where he would ultimately be martyred for his faith in Jesus. History tells us that Mark, our author, died in approximately 68 A.D. Now there is one detail concerning Mark's life, crucially important as background. According to Roman historian Eusebius, 
After the events that followed Acts chapter 12, the events where Peter was arrested by Herod, was thrown into prison, was going to be executed the next day, but was miraculously released, if you recall, uh, by the angels, led out of the prison. He comes back to where? The home of Mary, uh, Mark's home. He knocks on the door. They're having an all-night prayer meeting for Peter's release. Peter's knocking on the door. No one comes to the door. A A slave girl does. This whole event kind of transpires. After it's all said and done, Peter comes in. They glorify the Lord. Peter leaves, according to Eusebius' account, following this event. He leaves Jerusalem. He travels to Antioch and then through Asia Minor. His intention is to visit the churches that have been spreading out. First Peter records uh, this activity. He ultimately finds himself in Rome, according to Eusebius, in the second year of Emperor Claudius, 42 AD. Now this is significant because somewhere along the way, Peter picked up Mark. Whether Mark left with Peter there even beginning his journey, or it was sometime later, at some juncture of the travel, Mark joins Peter, becomes a traveling companion of the apostle, becomes an interpreter, probably was able to open doors because of his own personal robe and citizenship. Historically, it is believed, though, that during this time spent with the apostle Peter, that Mark penned his gospel, making the first edition of the gospel of Mark as early as 43 A.D., Let me give you some general background to the gospel. Three points if you're a note taker. First, the gospel of Mark, though penned by Mark through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, contains specifically the eyewitness accounts of events as remembered more than likely by the apostle Peter. As Mark and Peter are making their way to Rome, As Mark is acting as a traveling companion, an interpreter, a helper for Peter, no doubt they had lots of opportunity to discuss the olden days, the events that happened with Jesus. And no doubt Peter is recounting story after story after story, and Mark, an educated man, is recording them. He's compiling them. He's maybe journaling them. He's putting them together into an account of the life of Jesus, more than likely from the perspective of the Apostle Peter. And really, we'll find that though written by Mark, the flavor, the texture, let's just say the personality behind the gospel, kind of reminds us in some ways of Peter. Peter was the ADD Apostle. He was the guy that couldn't keep his attention focused for too long. He was constantly all over the place. Peter's personality was kind of shoot first, aim second. That was his mode. That was how he operated. He was a strong leader, but he was all over the place. Interesting to note that the key word we find in the Gospel of Mark is the word immediately. The word immediately is used 42 times, 42 times in 16 chapters. Immediately we did this, and then we immediately did that, and then immediately Jesus spoke this, and then he immediately did this and did that, and it gives us a lot of the flavor and the personality 
of Peter. The second point we should make when it comes to the background of the Gospel of Mark is that Mark's account of Jesus' life was aimed at presenting Jesus as the ultimate servant to a larger Roman society comprised predominantly of servants, slaves. It's been estimated that three-fourths of the world's population of the Roman Empire was in some form of servitude, was in some form of slavery. This is why the gospel itself focuses on actions and activities when it comes to Jesus. Mark's presenting Jesus as the ultimate servant. And as a servant, who cares what you have to say? A servant's life is uh, dominated by what they do, by their servitude, by their actions, their deeds, not so much their words. The third and final background point we should make is that historically the Gospel of Mark, 43 A.D., was the first written and laid the framework for the remaining two synoptic Gospels. Now, the synoptic Gospels, what are those? If you were to divide the Gospel narratives, the four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, into really two sections, you'll find that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very, very similar in regards to structure, narration, and John's gospel seems to be radically different. It seems to be a departure from the other three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. They're called the synoptic gospels because they're similar, synoptic and being similar. John's different. Now, if Mark writes early on, if he's the first to author an account of the life of Jesus, and his perspective is rapid fire, he's focusing on the actions, the deeds of Christ, he's trying to get a lot of information in, not so much focusing on the details, then it seems to make sense why Matthew and Luke would be similar to Mark, but would expound upon the details that Mark overlooks. Mark, 16 chapters, lots of information, not a lot of details. And so, because of the relationship, obviously, that Matthew would have to Mark, because he was an apostle, close relationship with Peter, was in the home there of Mary, Mark's mother. There was a relationship that Matthew, no doubt, had with Mark. Mark would have a relationship later on with Luke because of his proximity, his interactions with the apostle Paul. More than likely, as Luke is writing his own account, He's there with Mark. He has Mark's for reference. And so both Matthew and Luke are able to look and to utilize Mark's account, the first written, as a blueprint by which they then would expound upon some of the details that, well, Mark would overlook. John, just for reference, writes way later than the Synoptic Gospels and writes from a vantage point where these other three accounts are already in circulation. He has no need to retread on details that have already been laid out. And so he's writing from an entirely different perspective, a different time, trying to add a different flavor and more details that the other three didn't include, which is why John's is so different. So with a background profile established of our author and a bit of a background established concerning the book itself and a few ground rules laid out, let's dive right in. Mark chapter 1. Verse 1, the beginning 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's intro. This is Mark's intro. This is his thesis statement. It is abrupt. It is brief. But it provides us an important feature we shouldn't overlook. Right from the beginning, Mark wants his readers, interestingly, that includes you and I, to know who he's going to be telling us about. Mark's going to tell a story. He's going to tell a story about a person. And right from the beginning, he wants us to know with certainty and with clarity who he's talking about. And to accomplish this, he uses three names in his introduction to describe one person. The first name that we find here, the first name that Mark uses is the name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek translation for the Hebrew word Yahshua, or in English, Joshua. It was a very common name, Jesus. Historically, Joshua, Yahshua, was a patriarch. He was a hero. The story of Joshua was told to all of the, the little Jewish boys. No doubt, naming their sons Joshua was an honor. It was a privilege, but it was common. There were lots of Jesuses, lots of Yahshua's. The name was fairly nondescript. It was run-of-the-mill, especially for a first-century Hebrew male, Jesus. His name doesn't come with glitz or glam. It doesn't come with pizzazz or a certain marketing favorability. It's not as though he came wanting a name that would stand out. Bono. Or a name like The Edge. No. He comes with a name that's very simple. Very common. Not abnormal. It's simple. He comes with the name Jesus. And then we're also told, we're given a second name, Christ. Or literally, the Christ. Please understand, and I don't want to just assume, but Jesus was not his first name and Christ his last name, as some, I think, in America culturally believe. As my name is Zach Adams, his name was Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name, but rather it's a title. Literally, Jesus the Christ. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, or literally, anointed one. This was a Hebrew title that had been reserved specifically for the future descendant of King David, who would later rule and reign over Israel and all of the earth for eternity. The Messiah was seen by the Jews as a savior king. And so right from the beginning, Marx wants us to know that his name is Jesus. It's a common name, a simple name. Then he wants us to know that he's the Christ, that he's the Messiah, that he is the awaited savior king that the Jews have been looking to. But then thirdly, he uses the phrase son of God, another name for Jesus. Now, we should take a moment 
and we should address this title because this phrase, Son of God, is often used to imply something it was never intended for. The Mormons, as an example, like to use this phrase. They like to twist it to refer to all kinds of things Scripture never implies. The phrase itself, you should note, the phrase Son of God was never used to imply that Jesus was literally, was a literal Son of God in the sense of our typical human father-son relationship. The phrase culturally was used to identify instead the nature of the person it was qualified to. Think about it. To refer to someone as the son of something was to say that you're of the same nature or of the same kind as that, that individual or that object. If you were to say that you are the son of an elephant, you can logically conclude that that means that you're probably an elephant. If I am the son of an Adams, that typically means that I am by nature an Adams. The son of Sandy and Kathy, which means that by nature I have attributes that derive from Sandy and Kathy. To be the son of a giraffe doesn't mean then you're an elephant. It means, obviously, that you are a giraffe. To refer to someone as the son of something was not to say you were the literal son, but it's to imply that you're of the identical same nature of what you're referring to. Thus, to claim that someone is the son of God, it's to claim that person to be of the same nature as God, or to in fact be God. If you are the son of an elephant, you're an elephant. If you are the son of God, that means what? You are God. This phrase, you should understand, in context, was believed in this, this mode even by the Old Testament scholars of Jesus' day. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, during the trial of Jesus, the high priest demanded, he says, I charge you under the oath of the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah, or the Son of God. They understood what this phrase meant, not that he was the literal son of God, but that he was literally God. Now, chapter 1, verse 1, and Mark's thesis, what is he saying? He's saying this. This is who Jesus is. A man with a common name, who was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, who possessed a divine nature as the Son of God. Now, let me tell you how the story began by, verse 2, starting with the prophets of old. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now in this passage, Mark is quoting two different Old Testament prophets. He is quoting Malachi, and for reference, you can record chapter 3, verse 1. And he's quoting Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3. Now, since both Malachi and Isaiah foretold that this coming Jewish king, that this Messiah 
would have a forerunner, or you know what, for simplicity's sake, we'll just refer to him as the advanced man. Since the Messiah, the coming king, would have an advanced man, and since Mark has already established that Jesus was indeed this Jewish Messiah, he decides that this whole advanced man, this whole detail is not something he can simply overlook. So this is why he begins by talking about the advanced man. And according to these two prophecies, Malachi 3 verse 1 and Isaiah 40 verse 3, this advanced man would have two specific jobs. Two specific jobs. First, the advanced man would literally be God's messenger or would be a prophet sent by God. Now, Israel had a long pedigree of prophets sent by God to communicate a timely and relevant message to the people. In the Old Testament, the priest's job was to represent man before God. The prophet's job was to represent God to the people. He was to be God's megaphone to communicate a message, not of himself, but a message given by God for the people for that time. Now, since Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, had exited the scene, God had been silent. There had been no prophets or prophecy for some 400 years. The people, the people were waiting, even questioning whether God would speak to them again, the advanced man for the Messiah would bring a prophetic message from God and break this period of silence. So this is his first job. The first job of the forerunner or the advanced man is to be a prophet, to bring a message to the people to break this period of silence. His second job would be to prepare the way for the king or for the Messiah. Now, this is a common custom. This is not an abnormal uh, event or activity. Whenever royalty would make a trip, whenever the king would exit the palace and get into his chariot, before he made his way onto any pavement to work his way through any town or province, he would send out, it was customary, to send out a forerunner whose job it was to make sure the path that the king would take was void of any obstacles that might hinder the journey, he would literally prepare the way for the king who was making his travel. Today, even with our president, before he travels anywhere, we have an advanced team, the Secret Service. And what is their job? Their job is to go and to remove any obstacle, to make sure the path is clear of any danger, he, their job is to prepare the way. And so the job of the advanced man, that's twofold. One, he's a prophet with a message by God. His second role is to prepare the way, to remove obstacles, to make sure that when the king arrives, his path is clear and easy to travel. Now Mark continues by introducing us to the advanced man. Verse 4, John. John came baptizing in the wilderness, and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all of the land of Judea and those of Jerusalem went out to him, to John, and they were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John, he was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. 
And he preached. He preached passionately, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark introduces us to the advanced man, John the Baptist. Now, don't miss something subtle. This doesn't mean he's Baptist. This doesn't mean that he's John of the Baptist church. Literally, he's John the baptizer. That's what the word literally means. It was a phrase attributed to John because, well, that's kind of what he did. If you were to say, Fred the plumber, it's pretty obvious what Fred does, right? He's a plumber. Zach the preacher, I'm a preacher. John the Baptist indicates not that he was Baptist, but that he was a baptizer, that that's what he did. Now, needless to say, John the Baptist is one of the most colorful characters in all of Scripture. A true throwback, even by first century standards. Now, in examining John the Baptist, let's begin by looking at his pedigree. Now, we're not given any information here in Mark, but this is one of those instances that it would be helpful to, well, let's round out our perspective by maybe examining some other passages. We're told in Luke chapter 1 that John was miraculously conceived to an old priest named Zacharias and a virtuous woman named Elizabeth. John was born, and one can even make the case, groomed, commissioned, called for the role of advanced man. There was an incredible prophecy given to his father and mother before he was ever conceived as to what his role would be. Thus, John's childhood and his upbringing, they are indeed shrouded in mystery until he came bursting onto the scene. But we can understand that John was being groomed for the role. Not to mention that John the baptizer was the cousin of Jesus. And so there was a relational connection even before we dive into the scene of activity. His appearance is fascinating. We're told in verse 6 that he was clothed in camel's hair, had a leather belt, and he ate locusts and wild honey. John was the original REI hippie. He lived in the outdoors. He was a year-round camper. Bathing was optional. Grooming was not necessary. He was kind of one of the, these kind of people that would take their vacation time, maybe like a month in the middle of the summer, find themselves in the wilderness of Montana. I mean, that's kind of the way John the Baptist was. And he ate honey wild honey, and locusts. You could say that John took granola to an entirely different level. Now, his appearance is pretty radical. There's a legend that the camel hair coat that John the Baptist wore 
was actually the very coat that was handed down from Elijah to Elisha, and that it had been held in reserve for John. Later, we're told that John came baptizing in the spirit of whom? In the spirit of Elijah. And could it be an interesting connection? Maybe. Either way, John the Baptist was a wild-looking character. His location is almost as abnormal as his appearance. In many ways, John's ministry is unique because of the location that he chose to set up shop. John rejected formal ministry and the religious sinners of the day. And instead, he even rejected areas of central population and found himself in the wilderness. His auditorium was the wilderness. According to John chapter 1, verse 28, it was specifically an area known as Beth, Bethabarbara. Now, third century scholar Origen builds a case that Bethabarbara was actually an area on the shore of Jordan, the river Jordan, due east of Jerusalem and Judea. And it was the same spot that in according to Joshua chapter 4, the children of Israel marked their entering of the land of promise by piling up 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Origen believed that Bethabarbara was the same location that Joshua and the children of Israel crossed into the promised land. And this would bring some clarity to Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, when we read, interesting, that when John saw, as he's preaching, many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, that he said, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not think to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For, interestingly enough, I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham even from these stones. And could it be that Bethabarbara is the same location that the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan? That the Jordan parted? They made their way into the land of promise that John set up shop in the wilderness where it's not a religious center. There are no people, but this is where he finds himself. I think the case can be made. His message, his message, according to verse 4, at the center of John's preaching was repentance for the remissions of sin. Now let's unpack this by looking at a few key words in the text. The word repentance here literally means to change the mind. It can also refer to an about face. The word we translate for, repentance for the remission of sin, would be better translated for clarity into the English word unto, that it should read the repentance, repentance unto the remission of sin. The repentance that John exhorted the people towards, you need to understand, couldn't provide an actual remission of sin. John instead wanted the people to change their minds when it come to how they viewed their sin. This is the central core of his message, of his preaching. And why was it important for them to change their mind and how they viewed their sin? Well, verse 7 provides the urgency of his message. Why did they need to repent? 
because there was coming one after him who was mightier than he who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. John's message was very simple. This is it. The promised Messiah, the coming King, is coming soon. And so, you need to get yourself ready. You should get yourself prepared for His arrival. So His preaching, it challenged their thought, repentance, and how they viewed their sin. Now the effects of John's ministry are pretty awesome. Verse 5 tells us that all of the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him. Now understand that the, the journey here was a bit treacherous. Coming from the region of Judea and Jerusalem east to Bethabarbara, there at the Jordan, was a tough, tough journey. It was exiting a region that was mountainous down into a valley. And though the journey down might have been easy, the journey back up is always difficult, right? This was tough, mountainous passes that the people had to navigate. First century Jewish historian Josephus says that over John's one-year ministry, that somewhere between 300 and 500,000 people came to be baptized by John. Think about it. A one-year ministry with such an overwhelming response means that John the baptizer was baptizing a thousand people a day at a minimum. Awesome. And how did they know he was there? It's word of mouth. The word is circulating. That people are hearing rumors of this wild-haired hippie down near the Jordan preaching this message, this prophetic message of a coming king, and they're curious to the point that they make the journey. Half a million people. And the question we should ask is why did John's message resonate the way that it did? As mentioned, for 400 years, the people had lived in a time period of Israel's history, marked, yes, by silence, but interestingly enough, by extreme religious zeal and dedication. Following on the foothills of the Babylonian exile, an exile that took place because they refused to obey God's commands. Once the people returned to the land and rebuilt their temple, historically, they got really serious about not repeating the mistakes that had led them to Babylon. They got really serious about their religious fervor and their religious exercises, about sacrifices and obeying the law to the point that they got self-righteous. Sadly, their zeal, their renewed interest in religion, didn't lead to holiness, but instead led to self-righteousness and hypocrisy. It led to a dead religion and further silence from God. Silence, dead religion, and apathy. And then John breaks the silence with a word of hope and a future of excitement. John's words, you can imagine, 
were like droplets of water falling upon the parched soil of the hearts of the people. He spoke truth and a religious culture that had yielded no life change. And the people responded. His method. In both verse 4 and again in verse 8, there is an interesting component to John's preaching ministry, and that was the response to be baptized. Now before we get into the particulars of John's baptism, don't miss the subtle brilliance of John's tactic. Maybe this is more of an insight I gather as a preacher. But you know, sometimes it's easier for us to hear a message and wish that we had a better relationship with the Lord than it is for us to hear a message and then to be challenged to actually do something to have a better relationship with the Lord. John's call to repentance, it ended with a symbolic act to do something, not just wish something. Now, culturally, baptism wasn't a foreign concept to the religious Jew. John was not the first person or the first Jew or the first prophet to baptize. According to Judaism, if a Gentile wanted to become a legal Jew, he wanted to become a, a member of the seed of Abraham to be grafted into the faith. He could do so by first being circumcised and then being baptized into the Jewish faith. Now this is what made John's choice of responding to his message with the action of baptism, so fascinating. The people, when they responded to the message, they decided to enter the water to be baptized. They were literally communicating, culturally. They were communicating to the world, to their peers, to their culture, to their religion, to everyone involved when they entered the water, that I've been living like a paganistic, godless, condemned, lost Gentile. I've been living like a person unfit to be considered a child of God, and I repent of that action. I repent of that deed. I will identify myself as a Gentile so that I can be grafted back in. I can be cleansed. I can repent. I can become a rededicated child of God. It was a radical act. Baptism there on the shore of the Jordan. Now, though John's baptism and New Testament baptism are similar, and that they both are symbolic, please understand the comparisons end there. Even John recognized a difference when he said, I indeed baptize you with water. This is water, man. This is agua, good old H2O. But he, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus, will baptize you, not with water, but with what? with the Holy Spirit. John recognized that there was a difference between what he was doing and later what Jesus would do. Real baptism, the real baptism alluded to by John, is later described by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6. Let me just read for you how Paul describes baptism. Or do you not know that many of us, as we're baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For we have been united together in the likeness of Jesus' death. Certainly we 
shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Jesus and that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, shared this baptism of death, we believe that we should also live with him, the baptism towards resurrection. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. You see, John's baptism was by water to the remission of sin, repentance. Jesus' baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is a conversion. It's a spiritual baptism. It is us identifying ourselves with the death of Jesus and then being resurrected to the same life that he enjoyed, that resurrection power. Real baptism, the one described by John, baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place at our salvation. Now, post-conversion, Christian water baptism is symbolic of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which takes place within our hearts. But water baptism, Christian baptism, is an outward physical demonstration of what? Of an inward spiritual transformation brought on by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Water baptism is not for salvation. It is a declaration to the world of a transformation that has already taken place. Water baptism illustrating a spiritual baptism of the Holy Spirit taking place in my heart. Always in Scripture, you will find a precedent. Believe, repent, and then be baptized. You'll never see baptism as a prerequisite of salvation. Water baptism, spiritual baptism most definitely. So, like John's baptism, New Testament baptism, they are both symbolic of something greater, something deeper, something spiritual, but the comparisons end there. Moving along, let's examine this advanced man's ministry, his ministry. Think about how different John's ministry is to our modern American church ministry. Before today's modern ministry gets off the ground, we've been taught to consult community demographics, to examine population movements, to take into account the median income of the families moving into the area. Before we find a building or settle into a location, the modern church is supposed to check migration and traffic patterns, perform studies to rate street exposure, and on and on and on the advice will go from the modern church ministry. But John, his ministry, it was in the wilderness. He could care less. He didn't consult demographics. There were no people there. He didn't consult street exposure. He was in the middle of nowhere. And yet, that's where the Lord sent him and called him, and God was faithful to bring the people to him. In some ways, it sounds a bit like Winder. It sounds a bit like being tucked back into a little industrial park, kind of in the wilderness. And yet, at the same time, God's faithful to bring those who need to be saved. You know, the modern church ministry preaches marketing. It preaches image consulting. You know, you want to make sure you're putting off an image that's consistent with your message. Dress modern. Look slick. Be relevant. 
But John? John wore a camel outfit. And he never bathed. And John cared nothing about outward appearance. But he had been called and commissioned by God. And God blessed his ministry. The modern church ministry stresses the importance of a well-crafted, family-friendly, non-confrontational message marketed for mass appeal. Andy Stanley. Don't speak of sin. Don't speak of judgment. Never mention hell. Instead, focus on 12 steps people can use to better themselves. John instead, he brought a non-apologetic, straightforward message of man's need of repentance from sin and a Savior. He didn't water anything down. He spoke the truth with authority, with fervor, with passion, much different than the modern ministry. The modern ministry has sadly become messenger-centric with the intention that the spotlight should never leave the man behind the pulpit. And church consultants teach the importance of having a leader who people can identify with, relate to, rally around, and follow. John's message, though, was instead message-centric. John kept the spotlight off of himself, and instead, where did he keep it? Onto the coming Messiah. He kept it on Jesus. He even goes so far as to say that this one coming, his sandal strap, I am not worthy to even stoop down and to loose. His message was all about Jesus. It wasn't about him building a kingdom. It was about him promoting a future kingdom that was on the horizon. You know, I got to say that when I examine John's ministry, I find a stark difference to what we see in the modern American church. I see in John's ministry model all of the no-nos that church planting books and church growth consultants will preach from the lofty perch. But you know the truth is, is when I look at the byproduct of what's being produced from the modern church versus the byproduct of the ministry of John the Baptist, I must say that I'll choose John's model over the modern model. Who cares about the outward appearance? Who cares about the location? Let's keep the message on Jesus and let's speak with an unashamed passion the truth, not to tickle people's ears, but to see lives change and transformed and bettered. Let's prepare the way for a future kingdom versus being so concerned with building our own right here in Winder. On summary, and in part conclusion, I want to address how John's ministry here fulfilled the two prophetic requirements of the forerunner. First, as prophet, John was sent by God with a message warning the people that the Messiah was coming and they needed to get ready for his arrival. Don't forget, there were two jobs laid out prophetically that the forerunner had to fulfill. Mark establishes John as the forerunner, thus John needs to fulfill these two requirements. He was a messenger sent by God with a message, a message 
a passionate message that was prophetic. The Messiah is coming, people. I've been sent by God to tell you this. So wake up. May I stir you out of your slumber, and may you get prepared for his coming. This was prophetic. Secondly, in regards to being the advanced man or preparing the way, John prepared the way spiritually for Jesus in three fundamental ways. Three fundamental ways that John fulfilled this role of preparing the way for Jesus. First, through his preaching, John challenged the people to think logically for themselves. John wanted the people to see beyond dead religion. He wanted to challenge them to think beyond their preconceived ideals that had been taught over the centuries by the religious leaders of Judaism. John's preaching made them rethink everything. Repentance, rethink how this whole sin thing is to be dealt with. That was his message. You think that you're holy. You think you're blameless. You think you're honoring God. You think God's honored by your behavior and your obedience to Mosaic law. I want you to rethink this because I think you're off. He challenges first their mind to rethink what they've considered. And secondly, he challenges the people to recognize the true condition of their sin. He challenges what they knew only then to expose them to who they actually were. Religion. Had it bettered them? Had it saved them? Did they feel that way? You see, the truth is that religion had rather created nothing more than a false sense of moralism. They had all of their theological T's crossed and I's dotted, but they felt dead in the law and in legalism. God had been silent. So he challenges their mind to expose them to the reality of where they were. Rethink your life for a moment, I can hear John saying. But then the third aspect of preparing the way is that John challenged the people to then do something with the conviction that they felt. He challenges their mind. And they open up their mind to, wait a second, this is dead religion and I feel empty. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm an heir. Maybe this whole religious system is leading me astray because when I begin to take an evaluation of my own life, when I begin to think of sin and the remission of sin, I realize, wait a second, I have fallen very far from the glory of God. I can't save myself. I can't better myself. By the law, I'm condemned, not saved. I've got a problem, a problem that in my best attempts, my best effort, my best energy, I haven't come up with a solution for. And in that conviction, in that self-awareness, John challenges the people to do something. The action was to repent, to turn from sin, and to make a decision to turn back from God. And the result is very simple. And challenging their thoughts, their minds, their perspective, 
for them to reevaluate their own lives, to come to the understanding that they were lost. What then did they understand? They were in need of a Savior. The truth is, is that John's ministry of repentance prepared the way for Jesus. You see, when Jesus arrived onto the scene, the people had already begun to be brought to the point where they recognized dead religion of Judaism, that the law was insufficient, and that they needed a Savior. And some were ready to receive Him. Understand that this is still part of our ministry and the world around us. That if you want a blueprint on how you can minister to those around you, I challenge you, Christian, to begin with the mind. To have conversations with those that are lost. To challenge ideals. Don't always sense the burden to answer questions. Ask your own. And then challenge the audience for answers. Explain maybe the fallacy of their own thinking, their own world system. With the intention of exposing the need for, wait a second, I'm really not that good of a person. To bring them to the awareness that I, I can't save myself. I need a saving. Because that prepares the way for a savior. John, as the advanced man. This is how the story begins. This is how the story of Jesus begins. With John preparing the way. And then as we'll see, beginning with verse 9. Who immediately comes onto the scene? Came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth. And next Sunday, we will examine the baptism of Jesus and we will continue our way through the Gospel of Mark. So, Father, Lord, we thank you.